All right. Murphy's law is always trumped by God's law. What can go wrong will go wrong. But God's law, God's word, and God, Christ, overcomes. So I don't know why I said that, but I did. All right, go to Nehemiah 8. We're, gonna, we're journeying through Nehemiah 8 today. Well, actually, the whole book of Nehemiah. But today we're in verse uh, 13 to 18. <clears throat> so I'm going to read that now. For those of you that are just joining us, we're, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And it's a historical narrative of God fulfilling his promise to the scattered people of Israel who were exiled under the kingdom of Persia about around the year 458 BC. And God spoke to the heart of Nehemiah and promised him that if he were to take action, that he would fulfill not only all his promises to the people of Israel to gather them back to the land, but that God would provide everything Nehemiah needed to travel 800 miles from Persia back to the ruined city of Jerusalem in order to rebuild the walls. Now, the temple had already been rebuilt about 100 years before by Zerubbabel on the first return. But now uh, Nehemiah was called, and when he got there, like when God calls us to do something, there's always challenges that God likes to allow to stay in the path because he likes to work with us in the trial And he likes to work us through that trial. He doesn't necessarily always want to take us out. So he's working in Nehemiah. He's working through Nehemiah. He defeated his enemies all through these chapters. And really, he's only been there for a few months. He's been there roughly about uh, 52 days and now uh, to build the walls. And then after that is a couple months. Pretty much the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah is all about his first year back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls. And so there was one thing missing. The walls were rebuilt. The people had overcome their enemies. They were uh, tracing the genealogies. But then in the beginning of chapter 8, we found out the one thing that was missing, and that was the heart of the people needed to change. And the only thing that can change the heart of a person is what? The Word of God. So they bring in Ezra. And Ezra comes and he reads the law and the people who had just heard the law for the very first time, they had been in exile. They heard the law of God and they began to mourn and they began to weep and they began to grieve because this God who had delivered them so many times before and gave them so much grace had commanded them to do all these things in the book of the law. And they said, wow, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. And what did Ezra and Nehemiah and all the fathers say? They said, do not weep for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That joy. What is joy? It's selfless. That's the difference. Happiness is self, but joy can never be self. It's always based on sacrificial love of Christ. Joy is in the Lord. And so here we are right at the tail end of that. The people said, don't don't weep. Go out and rejoice. Eat of the fat, drink of the sweet. Go celebrate this festival. It was the Feast of the Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. And they said, okay, let's do that. And so they did. But now here in chapter 13, on that first day of the seventh month, the second day of the seventh month starts in chapter uh, 8, verses 13. And that's what I'm going to read now. And so this is about the Feast of Booths. So 13, then 
On the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths. Sounds fun. During the feast of the seventh month. Verse 15. So they proclaimed when they circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it's written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God. And in the square at the water gate and in the square at the Ephraim gate, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. I want you to remember that verse particularly. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So I don't know about you, but I cannot survive without my reminders on my phone. I don't know how many of you do that, but I set a reminder for just about everything. Not only that, I may write it down in my old school uh, day timer that I still can't divorce myself from. But I have about 10 reminders on my phone. And sometimes when they go off, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, I open it up and I say to myself, what did I set this for? What am I supposed to do at 12, 10 p.m.? Why did I do this? You know, and if it's a phone call or an appointment or something, I, I'll, I'll remember. But if the task is something I don't typically do and I'm not typically involved with, then without that reminder, I would probably completely forget. And so in Nehemiah, the passage that we just read, Nehemiah 8, 13 to 18, the people of Israel had a similar memory problem. The passage is about, again, the Feast of Booths, or, depending on what translation you're using, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what the word means. What is the Feast of Booths? Well, it was a major festival that the nation of Israel was commanded to celebrate every year during the first month of the civil year, which was also the seventh month of the ecclesiastical year, because they have all sorts of calendars and things like that, festivals and celebrations. And so this was one of those feasts that was required for them to travel to Jerusalem and worship. And they hadn't done this again in years since the time of Joshua, son of Nun. If you know the other two festivals, you remember when we went through the Gospel of John, they went to the Feast of Booths. They also went to um, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they're also commanded to go at the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So those three festivals, Israel has to come, or at least the oldest males, the firstborn males, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and worship. But the Feast of Booths was very, was very uh, significant just as significant as the other two. This was a real, real celebration because it wasn't a somber sort of like, you know, walking around in like uh, 
Lord, forgive me, I'm so sorry, in sort of a time of mourning, like would be sort of at the Passover or um, during Yom Kippur, Day of the Atonement, things like that. This was a time of celebration because God had rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Remember, Moses was sent into Egypt and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was a hard head, stiff neck, he wouldn't do it. And God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt. But then the people of Israel rebelled and they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. God was dealing with them for 40 years. God has been dealing with me for 40 years. I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure he's been dealing with you with certain things a long time as well, too. And we're knuckleheads sometimes, but God in his grace and loving kindness, what does he do? He sets us up and shelters us during that time. And that's what he did. He told Israel in the, in the wilderness to live in booths, and that's how they traveled. They wandered around. They would, t- they would pack up their tents or their tabernacles, and they would move, and they would follow the cloud of the Lord. And so <clears throat> it was so important for them to live in booths because, obviously, they had no other shelter. But in the actual celebration of the Feast of Booths, it was a memorial, So wherever they lived, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would take these trees and they would build booths and they would live in them as a memorial for what God did in the past. Also for what God was doing in the present, because that anticipation of the deliverance of Israel is throughout the whole Old Testament and in the New Testament. When are you going to deliver again, O God? When are you going to become king again, O God? When is your Messiah going to come? God will not defeat us, the enemies won't defeat us. Remember Israel, remember Egypt, remember the the wilderness, remember God bringing us into the promised land. And that's what the Feast of Booths was all about, to remember, to be reminded. Now, referring back to this time in the wilderness, we have a really cool scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It says, Paul, Paul admonishes us that, these things happen to them as an example, pointing to, the, to Israel in the wilderness. And they were written for our instruction. So whenever you look at the Old Testament, realize that although it may be sometimes confusing, it may be sometimes hard to wrap your hands and your mind around everything that's going on past, present, and what timeline it is, what prophet is talking about what. But never surrender that and say, oh, I'm going to forget the Old Testament. Let me just go into the New. Because what's in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament, which is then revealed. And so Paul reveals to us that the Old Testament here is for our instruction. But then you see as you dig into these themes, scriptures, and different topics in the Old Testament, that they all point right directly to Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to do today. My goal today is to see what instruction, Lord, are you trying to tell us? What reminder do you want us, uh, do you, are you trying, what are you trying to remind us of with this feast of booths with our time? I mean, I don't want to live in a booth. You know, I mean, I like to live in my place. I don't want to live in a booth, right? God's not calling us to do that. But I believe there is tons of similarities, tons of parallels with that, that we can extract out like the nation of Israel did, and we can apply it to our life here and now. And so I broke this up 
that God wants us to wants to remind us with this this text, us here and the people of Israel, of what was, what is, and what is to come. What was? What did God do in the past? What is? What is God doing right here and now? Not only for our lives, but for the people of Israel as they're rebuilding the city and they're going to live in booths. What is God trying to tell them about there and now? And of course, what is the type or similarity or symbol of all this as it relates to what is to come? The new Jerusalem. And so <clears throat> what I'd like to do is start out with what, what, what was. What was. The Feast of Booth reminds us of what was. What God did in the past. <clears throat> now God's provisions in the wilderness are the first things that come to mind. Do you remember what God did when those people wandered out in the wilderness and they were hungry? Most of us here are probably not hungry to the point of starving. At least I hope not. I probably have eaten equivalent to two meals already. I am not hungry, really. I'm always hungry, but I'm not starving. And as I look at Santo, I want to eat pizza. It's an inside joke there. You know, it's a pizza place. But seriously, we're not starving, right? But the people in the wilderness were told after they left Egypt to go and follow the Lord, how are we going to eat? What does God do? He provides manna, bread from heaven. God, all, The people still complained. They said, this bread is getting so annoying. Like Keith Green said, he sang, they made everything. They made all sorts of bread. Banana bread, he said, or banana bread. I forget what he said. It was funny because what are you going to do with this bread that comes down? You're going to fold it. You're going to try everything you can. What else did God provide? After they complained, he said, I'm going to give you meat that is going to be coming out of your nose. It's going to be coming out of your ears. So what does he do? He sends quail, blesses the people, even after they're rebelling blesses them with food. But one of the most significant blessings that he gave them and what the Feast of Booths is reminding them back, and now this isn't necessarily mentioned in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament we're told that when the people, well, when Moses told the people or asked God about that the people were thirsty or whatever, God said, go strike the rock. You remember that? And then water pours out of the rock. Well, we find out in the New Testament that that rock was Christ providing for his people. And so what do we have to do? How do we correlate this to, to us, to us and to our time? Well, first of all, are you depending upon God's provisions in your life? Now, I know the simplicity of food, bread, meat and water seems kind of funny. But go beyond that. Many of us, some of us here have financial problems. Some of us here are struggling with careers. Some of us here are struggling, what am I going to do with my life? Some of us here are, are looking back at <clears throat> their sins of the past and saying, God could never forgive me of this. My life is ruined. Well, when you look at the Feast of Booths, I want you to imagine that tabernacle being Christ, that booth being Christ. And he calls everyone. He says, if you drink of this water, Jesus said, referring to himself, you're never going to thirst again. 
He also says that out of your belly shall gush streams, gushing water, referring to the Holy Spirit. So you notice God provides for us first and foremost by providing us with himself. And as we know, Jesus is that tabernacle. He is that ultimate one that came and tabernacled among us, as John says in 114 in his book, in his gospel. The word became flesh. The word, meaning Jesus, became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. God's traveling, tabernacling presence in the wilderness is also an invitation for you as well. That tabernacling presence God wants to have with you. And that's a serious thing because he doesn't require um, an interest in the things of himself. He doesn't require um, a knowledge necessarily of the things of himself. He requires really that you give everything to himself. It's about full 100% surrender. We often complain, but full surrender means death in the, in the most positive way that you could ever speak of death. It means death to self. I couldn't resist this quote by Andrew Murray, who I, I think really just nails it. <clears throat> he says, until a humility that rests in nothing less than the end and death of self, and which gives up all the honor of men as Jesus did to seek the honor that comes from God, <clears throat> which absolutely makes and counts itself nothing, that God may be all, that the Lord Jesus alone may be exalted. Now, until such a humility is what we seek in Christ above our chief joy, and we welcome that at any price, then there's very little hope of, ever ch of having any change in yourself or in the world. And I know that seems like a daunting task, but Christ is about change, transformation, and he is about you coming to him and then him showing you. He's not about you going to him and making a deal. Lord, I'll come to you, and this sounds really good. I love the salvation stuff. I love the heaven stuff. But can you sort of map out what's going to happen in my life here if I really fully 100% give myself over to you? And God says, well, 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 I'll do whatever you need. I mean, come on. I mean, I'll make you happy. I mean, I'll bless you. You know, just say my name over stuff and you get it, you know, whatever you want. No, nope. Jesus doesn't do that. As Bonhoeffer says, Jesus says, come to me and die. But that means death to something that is really technically already dead, our flesh. And what do we do? We like to prop it up and, you know, pay a little puppets with it and make like it's got some power. It doesn't. He wants us to come and surrender and say, here. And so that's what the Israelites didn't do in the wilderness. They had, all, they had God right there with them. You say, well, Pat, listen, if I could have God with me and I could literally see him in the, in the pillar of fire and smoke and I could see Moses or anybody, Pat, I mean, we'll send Kevin up there, get me a tablet of stone, you know, with some laws written on it, I'll follow him. I say, no, you won't. Because you'll say, is that really God? 
Because even Jesus said, if somebody was raised from the dead, they're not going to believe even that person about the truth of God and his kingdom. So it requires faith and it requires God's spirit to open your heart. So come to him persistently and ask him for that faith. Ask him for that strength and he will not disappoint you, I promise. So the Feast of Booth, it's like what was, but now let's bring it into this time and place right here in the time of Nehemiah. It reminds them also of what is. God has brought them back as he had promised through the book of Daniel, the book of Jeremiah, throughout all the prophets prior to the exile. He said, I am going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to the land. So he brings them back to the land right at the Old Testament, setting the stage for the Messiah to come to that land in Jerusalem, in Israel, to save the Jews first. Salvation comes through the Jews and then unto the whole world. But God, in order to do that, had to give them favor from their enemies. So as they're sitting there in Jerusalem, halfway broken down with the wall rebuilt, they're taking these leaves, they're building these tabernacles, and they're going there and they're laying down. And they stood, <clears throat> tradition says they would lay down and they would look through and they would, the, the, the fathers would explain to the children about the story of the Exodus as they would look through the leaves up to the stars in the sky and things like that. And they're sitting there and they're saying, you remember how God delivered us? And somebody probably said how he delivered us. Then how about how he's delivering us now? He brought us out of exile. We, the temple and the walls are rebuilt. God's doing what he promised to do. Do you know that God can't break a promise? It's impossible for God to break a promise. Why? Because it's against his character. Just like it's impossible for God to do anything for himself out of selfishness. He can't. He's sinless. It's not part of his character. Everything God does, he does to give out and to bless. Everything even when it seems like it's difficult or he seems a little bit harsh, God can never be cruel. He is character, is love, holiness, justice, and truth. And he's given them favor, overcoming the largest army, the hugest nation, the most powerful force in the world at that time since time began, the Persian army, King Artaxerxes. How does Nehemiah end up as his cupbearer in Babylon? Not by chance. God had planned it before the foundation of the world. How did Nehemiah come up with the words to say to King Artaxerxes about going back to what God had put in his heart? Through prayer, through being burdened for God's people, for being burdened for God's land. See, God will put a burden in your heart. God will press onto your heart what he wants you to do, and then he will provide the way for you to do it. King Artaxerxes said, sure, Nehemiah, you can go back. And guess what? I'm going to give you all the things you need. I'm going to give you all the money you need. I'm going to give you an escort. And Nehemiah's like, oh, all right. Yeah, no problem. Wow, this must be for real. And Nehemiah didn't say a word. He traveled 800 miles, not even telling anybody what was in his heart. He didn't even know who was going to be there to help him. Where is God calling you right now? Are you being called somewhere and you're going, well, that's never going to work. Well, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get over that obstacle? I, I encourage you. I just 
I, I can't emphasize this enough. Don't worry about anything other than the first step when God calls you to do something. Don't think about the second step. Don't think about the third step. I mean, use your brain, okay? I mean, don't, you got to use your reason that God gave you at the same time. But you, once you have confirmed your calling through the Lord, through the word, through others, through the church, and you want to go out for the Lord, whatever that may be, don't worry about trying to connect all the dots or waiting for all the lights to be on green down the, down the highway to drive. It's not going to happen. Take that first step. So God not only gave them favor with their enemies, but what else did he do? He confused the plan of their enemies. It's okay to pray that. God, please confuse the plans of my wife. <laughs> Just kidding. Seeing if you're paying attention. Not my enemy. You got an enemy? You got somebody after you or people or group or whatever? You don't have to pray for God to wipe them out, to cast fire down from heaven. Just pray, Lord, just confuse their plans. And you'll be like, well, it just goes away. And that's what happened with Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. They tried to bring everybody against Nehemiah. They tried to threaten him. They said, we're going to go kill you. They had false prophets come and say, you better run, Nehemiah. Sambalot and Tobiah are going to really mad. They're going to come and kill you. Nehemiah said, I am not going anywhere. Am I a man to flee? God told me to do this. And I remember telling you, <clears throat> remember this, the entire assembly of those, verse 17, who had returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in them. And they're not talking necessarily about the people in, that came out of Egypt, although this scripture could have been placed right in the Exodus. But this is worded in such a way that it brings us rushing back to that time, right back to the wilderness where not only God provided for the people with provision, food, water, and shelter, but he also provided victory over their enemies. See, God didn't just send them into a land that was not occupied. He sent them into a land to wipe out those people that were in there because they were godless people who had, who had sinned against God, who had been against Israel, and God said, we're going to go in there. They're going to come after you, but we are going to wipe them out. Listen to what Joshua says in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. So the Lord, this is very at the end. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. See, notice he didn't say victory, he said rest according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the Lord's good promises, which he had made to the house of Israel, failed. All came to pass. That's the promises of God. And against your, the, the, the battles that you are fighting right now, God will fight for you if you allow him and put him first. If you, if you go to him before you act. One of the biggest, I think, uh, disciplines that Christians have to work on, myself, number one, knee-jerk response, knee-jerk reactions to things. No, that's when 
You have to take a step back and smile. The joy of the Lord is my strength. This is God. God allowed this to happen. God is going to take me through. He's not going to go, yep, I got you out there in the wilderness now. See you later. You're not perfect. I'm not spending any time with you. You sinned the other day. Nope, you're done. You're out. Next. It's not how God works. God is gracious. He's merciful. Even when we're not, even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And he wants to dwell with them again, there and now. What great patience the Lord has. What great patience the Lord has with his people. But you notice that God wants them to obey the law while they're in the land. So to be a part of the land doesn't mean there's anarchy. To be a part of, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you just take the get out of hell free card and now you could do whatever you want and just sprinkle grace on everything. No. God, when you come to Christ, God not only promises to provide for you, protect you, but he also promises that he will give you a new spirit that desires after righteousness, not after the things that you left back in Egypt. So he will fill you with his spirit as he has. He's filled you with his spirit. But what happens is, is we get miscommunication sometimes. We hear static, like sometimes you hear in our speaker system. We hear a little bit of static, right? And why is the static come? Because we, we quench the spirit with sin. And so when we sin, God doesn't say, I'm leaving you. I see it's more like God says, okay, I'll wait for you. Do your thing. Okay, you ready now? Okay, okay, we'll get back going again. Okay, and so that's what he does. He, he waits and he guides and, at, you know, we may be wandering here and he'll push us back online and his great patience. And that's what he's done to the people of Israel over and over and over again. And that's what he will do with you as well. So the best thing to do is surrender to God and you don't have to do those little right turns and left turns and get those little spankings once in a while by daddy. You could just surrender to the Lord and trust in him, but you must be willing to give him everything. You have to bring those anxieties, bring those cares, bring those worries and put them at the feet of the cross. And again, this is done up here, people. This is done here. It's done here as a result of what God does in here. So God works in here. He stirs you up and then it starts going light bulb. Wow. You know, and depending on how thick you are, I'm very thick. It takes, depending on how thick you are, determines how long that process will take. And the longer you become a Christian, the longer you know that you don't want to fight against God. So surrender. Use the word of God that's put in your heart. The word of God in this Bible. If you're not in the word, you're going to dry up. If you're not, if you're just zipping through the word for a checkbox, I read today, you're going to dry up. But if you go to the word as if you're going to God himself, you will be fruitful. And that's what God requires. So finally, this Feast of Booth reminds them of what's to come. And it reminds us of what's to come as well. Because this tabernacling presence of God that's going to come at the very end of all creation. In Revelation 22, you see it. Jerusalem comes out of heaven, and God is now amongst his people. Heaven and earth become together, and God's tabernacling presence is no longer in the temple. 
The whole earth has fulfilled its goal to become the dwelling place of God. Now, God doesn't come now. God can't be there now because sin has not been fully dealt with here. The victory is won, but the battles still are to be fought through you, through the Holy Spirit-filled Christian, the mini type of the microcosm of Christ that's to go out in the world, the mini temples, that's what we are. Don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? Paul's not just saying that to be pure. Yes, he wants you to be pure, but you're a temple that has legs. And that has a mouth and you are to proclaim throughout all the land that proclamation like they did here and you to call people in come into the shelter come into the tabernacle which is Jesus Christ come to Christ and you will be protected and you will be provided for not just here in this life but into in the life to come and that is very very important obviously I mean, any one of us, any second, could be present with the Lord. Now, every person, whether they know Christ in this earth, on this side of glory or not, during this life, every person will stand before God, before Jesus. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when we come to Christ, when we die, the Bible says well, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And then they're going to be ju- there's going to be a judgment at the end. When Christ returns, your body is going to be put back together. All your DNA doesn't get destroyed. It's in the ground. And by the power of Christ's word, he is going to bring your body back together, made new. And you are going to be perfect without pain, without sin, without problems, without trials. And you are going to have, a, I believe, an amazing future from there. Because the Bible says we are the first fruits of his creation. So God has many plans. But if you don't know Christ, it's a terrifying, terrifying thing to think about. And this is where the people, the word, this is why the Bible says the foolishness, of preaching is what saves people because the the preaching of the gospel of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing i mean they're like (laughs) i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to hell right yeah i'm gonna burn forever in hell sure yeah right yeah okay whatever that's that's not a loving god i don't want anyone to rule over me that's crazy that's our mantra for our world today in a nutshell Don't rule over me. I want to do what I want to do because I feel a certain way. And that road leads straight to hell. But the the gospel, Jesus Christ, leads to not only eternal salvation forever. You're going to be with the Lord. Not only on that side, but it begins the day, the second that you become born anew. When the spirit works and turns your heart, that's when your eternity starts. And God wants to use you to build for his kingdom in this time. And that's what I see here in the Feast of Booths. <clears throat> I see the Feast of Booths with this, within the city of Jerusalem pointing to this new Jerusalem, this ultimate promised land, where those that trust Jesus Christ and give him her, their life now, in this life, will dwell with him openly and freely forever. If you don't want to dwell with Jesus here in this short little bleep on the screen, that's our life. Dust. 
You're not going to want to dwell with him forever in eternity. You won't. Dwelling in this booth points to God's dwelling, tabernacling presence, as I said in the beginning, uh, to Jesus Christ. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that. The Holy One, the all-powerful One, the all-knowing One, took off His glory and came to earth as a man. And He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but yet He emptied Himself and trusted and relied on the Father to fill and animate Him. And that's exactly what we are to do here. So the Feast of Booths, again, it does remind us the past that God has provided for his people in the past. We see here in Nehemiah that he's providing for his people in the present. And we see what it points to, that he's going to provide for his people ultimately in the future, in that future resurrection, in that new city that's going to come down. Now, the key question is, because we're in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, how can we, without being a part of those being rescued from Egypt, without being a returning exile, can we claim? Are you telling me, Pat, I can certainly claim these promises? Absolutely. I want you to compare these two verses, right? Now, again, we have here in Nehemiah 8.15, what are they told to do when they go out to build booths? They're told to... Proclaim a circulate, uh, proclaim, I'm sorry. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees. That's Nehemiah. Now go back to Egypt, the the exodus from Egypt, right? They come out, they wander in the wilderness, God delivers them. And in Leviticus, is when God institutes the Feast of Booths. He tells Moses, tell everybody to make booths and live in them. But here's what he says, Leviticus 23, 40. On the first day, take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord seven days. You see those two verses. I wish I could put them up there. But the one in Nehemiah has two additional branches. Those two additional branches are olive branches and wild olive branches. Romans 11.7 says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive trees. Now what is he talking about there? You might say, where's Pat going with this? Well, what he's talking about is the olive tree, or the, I'm sorry, the olive branch is the people of Israel. And because they rejected Christ, they were broken off. But the Gentiles were the wild olive branch that was grafted in to the people of Israel. So we can also, and I think it's very significant that it's put here, not back there, but now as we're getting closer to the revelation of Christ coming, God's giving more and more and more prophecy, more, inf- more information. It's added here that I want you to put those in the tabernacle, these two other types of branches as well. And when we let scripture interpret scripture like we're supposed to do, we see that we can be grafted 
certainly into these promises if you are willing to follow Christ in his word. So do not mourn and weep. Trust Christ. He can provide what you need according to his will. Key, according to his will. To fulfill God's law of his promises of what he said. He will provide you, Jesus Christ and him alone. How do you trust him? By grace alone. I love how Jesus says in Revelation 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And again, when you dig deeper into Nehemiah 8 here, we see in verse 18, they read from the book of the law daily from the first to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And I love this. It's like a microcosm of our life. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the first and the last. And as we're here dwelling in these booths, how do we sustain ourselves? Through the law, the word of God, Jesus Christ. And so if God is calling you to turn around or to come, you can know that you, for certainty, that you will be provided for. It, it requires a repentance. It requires a turning from your sin. It's all grace, but God doesn't zap you necessarily. And if he does zap you, and you're just like one of those, woo, I'm converted, and you're, you, know, you just go crazy, like I did when I first got converted in 2000. I was one of those real radical transformations. But again, shortly after that, I was challenged and tested. So you can't get around it. Whether you, get, whether you come to Christ, as Claudia says, with the dimmer switch rather than the light switch, you may be that dimmer switch. You're coming, light's coming, little, 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 little. Fine. God's going to work with you consistently, persistently through that. He's going to make you more into Christ. Or whether you have that light switch where you say, I know this is true. I know Jesus died for me. I know he rose again for me. And I know that I'm doomed without him. Then right then and there, you call upon his name. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we cannot do anything without you. All things <clears throat> are through you, by you, and in you. And Lord, eternal salvation rests in your hand. No one can come to you, Lord, <clears throat> without you allowing it, without you drawing us. So please, Father, I ask that you would draw us to you today, uh, that you would draw us to Christ, to the cross, that we would nail our flesh to the cross along with Christ, and we would grab and yoke onto him and live our life alongside of him as he does take us in to that kingdom, <clears throat> which we know is coming, Lord. <clears throat> I ask, Father, that you would use us to help you in the power of the Holy Spirit build for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.